So you guys have been in Acts, which is one of my uh, favorite sections of the Bible. Uh, Luke, uh, his writing Luke and Acts is actually one of the things I studied most heavily when I was in seminary, and uh, it's just one of my favorite parts of the Bible, so I'm really excited. I haven't been able to teach in Acts in years, and so I'm glad to be able to teach Acts 17 today. Uh, that story that we read, it just seems, if you read it quickly, it's just a very straightforward kind of story, right? If you read it too quickly, it seems like it's just a brief stop, a brief little bit of information on one of Paul's journeys. If you've been, if you're, if you're new, if you don't know, if it was your first week, Paul was a guy who was once this hardcore Jewish religious leader, a religious teacher who had a radical conversion encounter with Jesus. And Paul's life was radically changed when he met Jesus. And he went from being this hardcore religious teacher of Judaism, even a persecutor of Christianity, to this guy that wanted to tell people everywhere about Jesus. And so Paul would eventually become a leader in the early church, and he traveled, and he taught about Jesus, and he taught churches. He started churches in many cities around the ancient Near East. And this work often led to persecution and conflict with the Jewish religious establishment, uh, as well at times with political and economic power groups. You've been studying this in the book of Acts, if you've been here. Uh, and, and we are studying this, and it covers, it covers a, a number of times where this dynamic happens, where, where Paul uh, goes into a city and he shares, and there's conflict and there's tension. So, so the last text that you guys would have studied in Thessalonica, Paul had been there, and this was this major city in Greece, right? Thessalonica was a major, important city in Greece. It still is today. There's a million people in Thessalonica. It's a coastal city, this trading port. And by the end of the five verses that we read today, Paul's going to be in Athens, which is another very important and famous city. You've probably heard of Athens. It's a cultural and educational hub. It's the capital of Greece today. And, and so almost by accident or circumstance, though, Paul spends a brief amount of time in Berea. It's, it's a very modest city. It's not famous, really, in any regard. It's, it's nestled inland from the coast. It's right at the foot of a mountain range. And, and Paul is there, really, because he is in between two places. He's fleeing persecution from the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica, and they follow him to Berea, and they're going to chase him out of there as well on his way to Athens. He's really just there because he was forced there. Uh, if you were to modernize the geography a little bit, it would be like Paul was in San Francisco, best city in California. Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, and his teaching angered some people. San Franciscans are sensitive, you may have noticed. Uh, and then he flees to little old Fresno, okay? Before, before quickly, like most people do or attempt to do, end up in Los Angeles. So, so Paul, he's made this very brief stop between two very significant cities in Fresno. Okay, that's where our story takes place. Apologies to Fresno. I uh, hear it's a great place. Uh, I've never been, like most. Uh, <laughs> so what good can come from a trip to Fresno? Shouldn't we just skip over these verses and jump down to his time in Athens where he's going to meet with philosophers in the Areopagus? Shouldn't we just do that and get to the important city? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think Luke, the author of Acts, has actually included this text, this little pit stop in Berea, in Fresno, for a significant reason. There is something unique about the Bereans. Maybe you caught it in the text when we read it. Let's unpack what made this stop in Berea unique and different than Paul's time in Thessalonica and different than his time in Athens. In each of the cities, uh, Thessalonica, where Paul just was, in Berea, where he is now, and in Athens, where he'll soon be, Paul follows a very regular pattern. He first goes into the Jewish synagogue, which is where ethnic Jews and converts to Judaism would have met for religious instruction. It was their kind of version of church. And my, my guess here is that Paul would come into one of these synagogues and he'd introduce himself. And Paul, if you know anything about him, had these incredible religious credentials. He was educated by one of Judaism, uh, Judaism's most famous rabbis, this guy Gamaliel. It, it's like Paul went to the Harvard of Judaism. 
And so Paul, he comes up, shows up at this church, and he asks if he can teach a little bit at the synagogue and share from the scriptures. And the local Jewish leaders and rabbis, they look at each other and are like, man, we haven't had a Harvard grad here in a while, so why don't we give him the pulpit? And, you know, this is exciting, especially in a place like Fresno. Not a lot of Harvard-educated guys in Fresno. Really nailing Fresno. I was, I was close. I was going to do Bakersfield, but it ended up being Fresno. Uh, it, it would have been a special event to have someone with his credentials teaching in a place like Berea. And so Paul, he starts reading and explaining from the Bible how the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah. Okay, so far so good. They've heard this before. How the scriptures promised that this Messiah would come as a king, how the scriptures foretold this and they prophesied it. And again, they're nodding their heads. Yes, we've heard this before. And Paul is probably sharing this very similar kind of message that they would have heard time and time again as Jews. And, And then things, though, they veer off in a very unexpected direction when he shares. Paul Paul does this time and time again. He begins to explain how the Messiah, this Savior, Jesus, has already actually came. He has already came, and he uses their scriptures to show them this. This would have been like the ultimate record-scratch moment in the synagogue, okay? Like the, what? Are, Are you saying that the Messiah that we've been waiting for has come and that we have missed him? It would have been an awkward moment in church. Paul, the guest preacher, has just started saying something the local Jewish leaders would have thought is crazy, heretical stuff. It would be like today, if when Lorenzo and Casey invited me to speak here, it started off well, and then all of a sudden I was like, guys, I'm I'm really convinced that the Bible teaches that Scientology is where it's at, okay? So I want to invite you today to to get rid of your engrams and become our essential operational thetan. (laughs) Who's with me, Okay. That would be weird. Lorenzo would feel like he needed to stop me. And really, this honestly is kind of the dynamic that's happening with Paul. He's co-opting the synagogue to teach about Christianity, which he believes and knows and is convicted of, is totally aligned with the Jewish scriptures, and it's the fulfillment of this Jewish religion, but it's not what the Jewish leaders taught or believed at that time. And so this happens over and over again in the book of Acts. Paul goes into the synagogue, he teaches from the Hebrew scriptures, And he eventually starts to share that Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures. And this almost always upsets the Jewish religious leaders. They they try to kill him. They try to drive him out of their city. This is what happened in Thessalonica. It's what happened in Iconium, in Pisidian Antioch. A handful of people might, might agree with him, might believe. But the majority of those, the leaders, those in power, band together and they try to expel Paul or arrest or kill him. This is the dynamic time and time again in Acts. It's a pattern. But what's amazing is it's different in Berea. Acts 17, 11 through 12, it says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The Jewish leaders in Berea don't try to shut Paul down. They don't try to kill him. They don't try to kick him out. No, they receive the message with eagerness, eagerness. And while Luke says that in Thessalonica and Athens that some people believe, okay, in Berea, Luke records that many people believed. The response of the Bereans was atypical. It's abnormal. They were much more receptive to the message of the gospel. But why? Is it because they're country bumpkins? They don't know any better? Is that, is that why they're receptive to the gospel? No, that's not, that's not what Paul says. It's not what Luke says. What's, what's different about the Bereans, what made them more receptive to the message, is very simply their view of the Bible, their view of the scriptures. 
It's not that these people in these other cities didn't have the scriptures available to them. They all had the same scriptures in their own synagogues. And it's not that Paul preached better or worse sermons in their cities. What made the Bereans receptive to the message was their own engagement with the scriptures, that they checked what Paul said against the scriptures to see if it was true, to see if it was right, to see if it was consistent. And I believe why Paul or why Luke includes Paul's time in Berea in the book of Acts is to highlight the importance of our own view of the Bible, to present to us the Bereans as a model to emulate, so that we too, so that collective church, can be receptive to God's message to you and for you both as a community and as individuals. I want to share a few ways this today, this afternoon, that we need to view the Bible in order to share the Bereans' perspective to receive the same kind of blessing that they received, as well as some practical ways that we might be able to grow in our engagement with Scripture. But I don't want to jump past the story just yet. A couple more things. I, I know just from the outset that there are some people here that are, that are sincerely skeptical, that have questions about the Bible's validity, accuracy, historicity. There's no way that I can answer all of those questions. I wish I could. There's some great resources I could point you to if you have questions. Uh, but if you are skeptical today, I want you to know that God welcomes your skepticism. I think that he's much more honored by a sincere seeking and by asking difficult questions than he is by blind faith, than he is by unquestioning obedience to religious teachers. That's, that's not what he's calling you to. And part of what is noble and commendable about the Bereans is that while they receive Paul's message with eagerness, it's this eagerness that's born out of skepticism, okay? The, the, the Bereans, they don't take Paul at his word, not because he's some famous religious leader, no. They, they check his teaching against the teaching of the Bible to see if Paul really was telling the truth, to see if his arguments were accurate, accurately representing the scriptures. And so I want you to know, you don't have to check your mind at the door when you come to a church. You don't have to stop thinking critically when you read the Bible. On the contrary, God wants you to be like the Bereans, searching the scriptures to see if the message that you hear today is coherent and internally consistent. And at the same time, for you, if you might have grown up as a Christian or you grew up around the Bible or in a Christian family or in a Christian culture, uh, I think there's something here that's challenging. The story of the Bereans should wake you up a bit. Because it's really interesting that the majority of the Jews that Paul engaged, many of them who would have had a long-term religious commitment, okay, they would have been long-term committed to the Scriptures. They, they probably knew the Scriptures even well. They still missed the Messiah. They rejected the message that Paul shared, and they rejected Jesus. And I think this is because instead of searching the scriptures and living aligned with them, they took the scriptures for granted. And they succumbed to the social pressure of their culture, which was for them Judaism. It was not Christianity. And so we all need to be daily, like the Bereans, examining the Bible for ourselves, making sure our faith is legitimate and that it's living, that it's not inherited, and it's not cultural. There's no such, you can't inherit Christianity, okay? No one inherits Christianity. We, we might gain uh, certain knowledge through a culture, but we have to choose to follow Jesus for ourselves. And, and I want you to know, maybe you've experienced, there is a subtle way that we can live in and around and close to the Bible all the time, but we remain really far from its power, really far from its ability to transform us, and really far from its ability to change our life. And so whether you're skeptical or religious, there is a challenge for each of us today that the Bible has, and, and it wants us to receive it critically, but with eagerness. That's what I want us to do, to, to think of the Bible as something we, we, we receive uh, critically with eagerness. And so let me give you a little bit of information about the Bible that will help you understand what the Bible is 
and how you can engage it well. Uh, some of this might be new, some of this might seem like something you've heard before. I promise you'll learn something. Uh, we're going to have a fun history lesson in a bit. The Bible, number one, is a divinely inspired book. It's written by humans in human cultural forms. That should come up behind me. The Bible is a divinely inspired book written by humans in human cultural forms. The Bible actually contains 66 different books. It was written by many different authors over hundreds of years. It contains many different genres of literature. There's poetry, there's prophecy, there's historical narratives, there's even biography. And honestly, many of the challenges people often have with the Bible stems from the fact that they don't recognize, they don't realize the various literary forms that the Bible has and takes. For instance, you would read a text message full of emoticons differently than you would a legal letter from the IRS, right? There would be a different kind of posture towards those two messages. You'd read Harry Potter differently than you would a cooking recipe, okay? In the same way, we need to understand that the Bible includes all different kinds of writing, and all of it needs to be interpreted in light of its literary forms. It's just a big principle for you as, as we engage the scripture to remember. And yet, at the same time, even though it has uh, the, these human forms to it, Christians have maintained that since the beginning, that the, the Bible is actually uh, inspired by God, that it is God's words. It's not just a human document. It's, it's actually divine in some ways. It's God's words in it. He is the true author behind and inspiring the human authors that we read. The biblical authors themselves, they declare this book that while written by people is at the same time a divine book inspired by God, created by him. I want to read you two things some of the biblical authors say. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is 1 Peter 1, verses 21 says this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible claims to be divinely inspired, God-breathed, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and yet at the same time, it's written by humans in human literary forms, with human language compiled by humans. And you may have questions about how that works, how the Bible uh, came together. I'd be happy to answer some of those questions. I'm sure Lorenzo would love getting a lot of questions from you in emails. Uh, but remember, I want you to remember this, that at the center of the Christian story is Jesus, okay? Who we believe as Christians to be God in human flesh, in human form, fully God and at the same time, fully human. And, and the Bible, it's somewhat similar. It shares some similarities that it's it is God's word. It's in human form, just like Jesus was, okay? Number two, the Bible is a historical, doctrinal portrait of God's interaction with humanity. The Bible is a historical, doctrinal portrait of God's interaction with humanity. All those words carefully chosen. The Bible, even with its miracles, claims to be history. It's not myth or legend. If you read the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, which is like, part one of this two-part book, Acts, that we're reading. In his introduction to his two-volume work, Luke writes this. He says this. This is Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke, he is very clear that what he is doing is attempting to write an orderly, 
accurate historical account of Jesus' life and the life of the early church. And these, and these things he's writing, they're based on the testimony of people who actually witness these events in person. And then this is why Luke's gospel all the time, the book of Acts, it contains so many people's names. You ever wondered that? Why are there so many names in here? This is Luke's way of saying, in kind of an ancient way of citing sources, saying that this person was there, this person was there. You can go in and check with them. He's saying that these things that I'm writing about happened in the real world to real people in real space and time. And his original audience, they could have gone and they could have checked his sources. Luke has written a historically accurate account of Jesus' life and the life of early Christians. And at the same time, while this is a historical book, uh, Luke and Acts and the Bible is as well, it's not a modern Western historical textbook. It's not a science textbook. And so we need to be careful at the same time to not impose our culture's standards of accuracy onto the Bible or onto the various uh, books it contains. A massive amount of confusion about the Bible as well. It isn't just about literary forms. It comes from kind of asking and imposing 21st century standards of Western scientific rationalism on the Bible, asking questions of the Bible that isn't even trying to answer. The authors of the Bible intentionally shaped their stories, not just to tell history, even though they did, but to also teach us theology, to teach us doctrine. The Bible is a historical, but it is also a doctrinal work. It's designed not just to report facts, but to teach us something about God and his interaction with humanity. So it includes much more than just events and dates and facts. It contains dialogue, poetry, narrative, speeches, uh, depictions of vivid dreams and prophecies. And this is part of why, uh, the reason why I use the word portrait when I describe the Bible. Uh, a portrait, a portrait, if you know, if you're a photographer, it's intentionally designed to tell you about its subject. N not just what the subject physically looks like, but what the subject is like. A great portrait, right? A great portrait tells what someone's essence is. Not, not just their physical person, but something about their personality as well. If you looked at a driver's license, if someone gave it to you, you could, you could know what they look like. You could say, yes, that looks like you. But you wouldn't know much more than that. It's accurate, right? But it's incomplete if you want to know what that person is like. Are they a kind person? Are they an angry person? A simple picture can only tell you so much, but a well-designed portrait, a well-crafted portrait can tell you so much more. And the Bible, I think its intention is to tell you what God is like, what his interaction with humanity is like, and so it is more like a portrait than a simple picture. And when I, when I talked about the Bible and when I say portrait, I actually have in mind not even a, photo, a photograph, but a painting. And I choose that image carefully because I think it demonstrates the, the, the kind of historical doctrinal book that the Bible is. So let me give you an example of this and how this works out, all right? Um, have you ever seen a photograph of George Washington? Anyone seen a photograph of George Washington? Okay, raise your hand if you've seen a photograph of George Washington. Okay, a handful of people. These people are liars. Um, the first photographs were made in 1800, but unfortunately, Washington died in 1799, okay? So, so how confident are you, though, that you might know what George Washington looks like? Anybody here know what George Washington looks like? Okay, people have a sense. All right, how, if, you, if you feel like you know what George Washington looks like, raise your hand. All right, okay, good. All right, I want you to remember that you raise your hand. Good. Uh, you think I'm going to trick you? I'm really not. Um, as close of a photograph as you can get of George Washington is this. So let's show the picture of George Washington. No, before that. Before that. Bam. <laughs> That is as close as you can get to an accurate representation and a photograph of George Washington. Take that down, it's gross. All right. Now you could conclude 
that since we don't have any photographs of George Washington, that we can't know what he's like. We can't know what he looks like, right? You could conclude that. That's often a, a shape of the kind of argument people are making about Scripture. And, and, and what's happening here is that, that we have this modern standard of accurate representation, photography, and that standard didn't exist before 1800, and so we can't know what anyone looked like before then, right? Now, that would be ridiculous. That's, that's stupid. We all know what George Washington looks like. We have dollar bills. Uh, and, and while this kind of hyper-accurate scientific thinking, it sort of presumes to be rational, it actually leads to one to make a rather foolish conclusion. Why? Because there are other standards than photography to know what a person looks like. There are other, there are other means of doing that. There's verbal description, there's painting, there's sculpture. And each one has certain strengths. Hear this, each one actually has certain strengths over photography. For instance, while photography can give you kind of a two-dimensional material accuracy about something, sculpture can give you a three-dimensional perspective. You can touch a sculpture with your hand. You can stand next to it and gauge its size and its dimensions. And so here's a sculpture of George Washington. Bring that one up. There we go. Uh, commissioned and produced before Washington's death, the artist, um, sorry, Isabelle Jean-Antoine Hodin, uh, traveled from Paris, and he took exact measurements of Washington's body, and he made a mold of Washington's face. And, and you can go and see this, this statue. It stands six feet, two inches tall, and it provides an accurate perspective on what Washington looked like. It's not a photograph, but if you were to view it in person, it would tell you something about Washington that even a photograph couldn't. Which is why, it, which we, which is why we need to be careful not to impose our own cultural standards, which happen to be very uh, scientifically precise, material, even mathematic, on the Bible. That culture and their genres of literature had a different standard. And that doesn't mean they're not accurate, it just means that it may be a different kind of accuracy than we first look for as 21st century modern people. And we need to keep this in mind when we read the Bible. I want to show you one more. I want to show you the official presidential portrait of George Washington. Okay? It's called the Lansdowne portrait. It hangs or it hung, I don't know what Trump's done, uh, in the East Room of the White House. He's changed all kinds of stuff. Uh, it was painted by Gilbert Stewart, and it's a wonderful example of a historical doctrinal portrait. Because the painting, it not only attempts you to show what Washington looked like, it, it tells you something about who he was, about what he was like, about what he stood for. And if you take a close look at this painting, you're going to learn a great deal. Its details teach us something. If you zoomed in on the books on the floor, which we, which we can't do, you will see a copy of the Constitution. On the table is a copy of the Federalist Papers. These are foundational documents for our country and for this new nation. Uh, in uh, Washington's hand is a saber, reminding you that he was a military leader, that he commanded and commands an army. And, and, and there are many, many more doctrinal symbols and, and features. And if, if we impose our cultural standards, whether these regard material accuracy or even symbolism, we're going to miss some of the truth of this portrait, right? For instance, if you check out the rainbow in the upper right-hand portion of the painting, Okay, you, you, you see that rainbow? Everyone see the rainbow? Now, I'm not entirely sure what the rainbow meant in Washington's time, but, I, but I'm pretty sure it means something different in, in our culture today, at least in San Francisco, right? So, so, so we need to be careful when we read the scriptures not to bring our own cultural assumptions, our own cultural symbolism into the Bible and, and mishear what God might be saying. We might risk misinterpreting it if we do that. Now, I can go on and on. There's an incredible amount of symbolism in this picture. Uh, talk about Washington and this portrait. Uh, you can zoom in on all kinds of details, and the rabbit hole goes deep. It's this detailed, accurate, historical 
picture that's meant to teach. It's a doctrinal portrait. And, and what I want you to know today is so is the Bible. If you really deal, drill into it, if you dig down, you will find that the Bible, and, and this is Paul's point in Berea, that the Bible is all about Jesus, that he is the focus of the portrait. That takes us to our third point, point three. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus, and we ultimately need to have his view of the Bible. So more than even the Bereans, we need to have Christ's view of the scriptures. That's what I would love for you to leave with today. And I wish we had time uh, to walk text by text through all of the different ways that Jesus demonstrated his view of the Bible. If you ever want to do a really fun study with some friends, uh, you know, that sounds weird, like fun study with your friends to go look at all things. I promise it could be cool. Um, Go through and look at all the different ways Jesus interacted with the scriptures, all the ways, what, what it teaches you about his view. And I love what this pastor Kevin DeYoung concludes about Jesus' view of the Bible after this exhaustive study that he does. I want to read you his conclusion. It's a pretty long quote, but bear with me. It's worth it. He says this, Jesus held scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with language of scripture. He easily alluded to scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on the cross, he quoted scripture. His mission was to fulfill scripture. His teaching always upheld scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, poetry. He shuddered to think of anyone, anywhere, violating, ignoring, or rejecting scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of scripture, down to the sentences, down to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest mark. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, and the authorial, uh, authorial ascriptions as given straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict scripture or to stand above scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What scripture says, God says, and what God said was recorded infallibly in scripture. Jesus submitted his will to the scriptures, committed his brain to study the scriptures, humbled his heart to obey the scriptures. In summary, it is impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. The Lord Jesus, God's Son, our Savior, believed his Bible was the Word of God down to the tiniest speck, and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in his Bible could ever be broken. I love that depiction. Collective church, more than even the Berean view of the Bible, we want you to have Jesus' view of the Bible, which is that the Bible was authoritative, accurate, powerful, life-giving, and that ultimately it is all about him. This is the reason that Luke highlights the Bereans in Acts 17, because they searched the scriptures and in the scriptures, they found Jesus. This is what God would want for us today and each day, that in our study of the Bible, that we would daily meet and encounter Christ, regardless of what portion of the Bible we're studying. Uh, My kids have this children's Bible. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Jesus Storybook Bible. Has anyone ever seen that? It's this really amazingly well-done book. If you feel like, I don't know, crap about Christianity, Go get the Jesus Storybook Bible and read that. It'll take you a couple hours, uh, and, and you'll, you'll know the, the gospel story very, very well. 
And, and this Jesus Story Bible has an awesome subtitle. The subtitle is, uh, Every Story Whispers His Name. And what a great way to view the Bible. A book in which every story whispers his name. Now, we might have to lean in, we might have to listen carefully, but if you study, if you dig deep, you will hear his name every time. That is the goal of Scripture, that by engaging in it, that you will hear and meet Jesus. So I'm going to leave you with a couple words of caution as we engage the Scripture and something to maybe give you a bit of confidence. Uh, first, first bit of caution, it is possible to study the Bible regularly and ignore the life-changing truth it contains. James 1, 22-25, it says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face, his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like, was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It can be really easy, really easy, to just sort of default on a Sunday, default in the morning if you open the Bible, to, to just hear or read it and never do what it says. There's been big chunks of my life where I did that. And, and this might make sense if you're just exploring Christianity, but if you are a Christian, this is incredibly dangerous and foolish. Living this way, right? Hearing good sermons and never putting them into practice. Studying the Bible, but, but never making concrete changes to our lives. It, it takes us out of God's blessing and it builds calluses on our heart. And I think when we live this way, it honestly, it makes us increasingly deaf to God. And so this is the opposite of the eagerness that, that Luke records the Bereans having, that Paul wants, that I would want to have for myself, that I would want for you, that we would be eager and quick to hear God. And so today, if you, if, if you feel any sense of conviction about that, if you feel like, man, I've been, at least in this part of my life, a hearer of the word, but not a doer, I encourage you to do what the Bible would say to do in this situation, which is to confess your sin to God and then also to a trusted friend. Grab a friend tonight and just while we're doing worship or praying and just say, confess your need for grace. Say, man, I, I, I've been listening but not doing. And, and renew your commitment to God and ask them to help you not just be a doer but a hearer of his word. Second note of caution, it's possible to study the Bible and miss Jesus. We saw this with the other Jews in Thessalonica and Athens. And Jesus himself, he covers this. He says this and to some religious scholars in John chapter 5. Verses 39 through 40, he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We see this with many people in the book of Acts. People hear the good news of the gospel. They may even read and study the Bible, but they refuse to submit their lives to Jesus. Maybe because of pride, maybe because of fear, and the image I get when, when, I, when someone is doing this, it, it's like someone giving you this life-saving bottle of medicine. And they say, hey man, you're, you're, this is going to save your life. You're great. And you just read the label. Just over and over again, read the label. And you never take the medicine. You never receive the life-giving gift that it contains. If, if this is you today, if you've been studying and seeking and you are convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, but you, but you haven't jumped in yet, you haven't trusted him, you haven't confessed your sin, you haven't asked him to be your savior and your king, I ask you, do this today. 
Don't let fear or pride or love of sin keep you from the new life that Jesus offers. And I want to share the same thing with you. Go to God today. Confess your need for him as well as your faith in him. And go to a friend. Go to Pastor Lorenzo. Ask him to pray with you and help you take the next steps of faith. Here's a final word of encouragement from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This may seem like a weird text, but it is truly encouraging. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How is that encouraging? Because it tells you that you are not alone when you study the scriptures. You are not alone in your pursuit of God. He is actually pursuing you through his Holy Spirit in his living word. When you hear, when you study, when you read the Bible, it is alive. And God's Holy Spirit is active to us and through his word to reveal to us our own hearts, to show us what's going on in ourselves, to, to cut us open, to demonstrate our need for grace so that Christ might come in, live in us, heal us, fill us, and make us full of life in him. Guys, God's word is alive. It's pointing us to Jesus. Let's engage it well. Let's pray.